We are continuing this morning with our series, our study through the book of Acts. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. And if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page uh, 1160. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, we've looked at the very early development of the church uh, after the resurrection of Christ here in the book of Acts, and we've seen something of a pattern in the way Luke is telling this story. Uh, First, he recounts a miraculous event of some description, followed by an explanation of the event for those who observed it, who witnessed it, who were there. And then he shows us, after the explanation, he shows us the results in society, whether that society is the the close society, the the nascent church, the small group there, uh, or in the broader society there in Jerusalem. Uh, And that pattern will continue this morning as well. Two weeks ago, we looked at Luke's account of Uh, Peter and John healing a man who had been born lame uh, while they were on their way to the stated prayer time at the temple. Last week, we looked at Peter's sermon explaining what the people who, the crowds, to the crowds, what they had seen and what the Lord had done and what it all meant and how they were called to respond. This week, though we're going to see the, very briefly, the response of the crowds, we're going to get a very different reaction from the leadership in Jerusalem. leadership who offer really the first serious resistance to the gospel since the crucifixion itself. And in seeing that resistance, we're also going to see how Peter and John respond to that reaction, to that resistance. And then maybe as we see that, we'll also begin to get some perspective, a a good approach, an appropriate stance that we might have toward the resistance that we face in our own day. But of course, as always, when we open God's Word, we need His Spirit among us, teaching us, explaining it to us. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray for the Spirit to be among us, and then remain standing as we read from Acts chapter 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word, for the truth that You have broken into our world and given us what we could never have figured out on our own. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that You would root this truth deep in our hearts, in our souls, that we would more and more look like You. That we would bear Your image faithfully. Our sin is such that we will twist this to mean whatever we want it to mean and not at all what You intended for it to mean if You don't restrain us. So Lord Jesus, restrain our sin, lead us to Your truth, and cause us to apply it faithfully all by the gift of your Spirit acting and working among us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 4, for, through verse 1 through 22. This is God's Word. As they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men grew to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, who were all part of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by by which one must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred together with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God, To listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I graduated from high school in the mid-90s, and even that recently, even as recently as the mid-90s, the culture in the United States, it seemed at least, was dominated or even controlled by those who professed faith in Christ. Broadly speaking, the values which the culture at large was based on and still held to for the most part were those commonly thought to be associated with historic Christianity, the assumptions of Judeo-Christian morality, right? You've heard that phrase. Those assumptions ruled in culture. Now, obviously, there were areas in which Christian mores didn't hold sway, but for the most part, those who were radical and departing from the culture were doing it by departing from the Christian assumptions about the world. But even in the mid-90s, the dominance by Christian mores had already begun to shift, albeit subtly. And within five to seven years of my graduation, that shift had become much more dramatic, much more visible, much more obvious. Now, those assumptions that were true about the culture when I was in high school seem to have been completely turned on their head. More and more professing Christians are in the minority. And maybe worse, even among those who profess Christ, The number of those who see the whole Bible as authoritative over and applicable to modern life seems to be shrinking, and that's accelerated in recent years. Maybe in the last five to seven years, that has accelerated significantly. It can seem, at times, like the rule of Christ over the world is failing. It can feel like Christ is losing particularly in our media-saturated, social media-dominated culture, it can feel like Christianity is fading out, that it's either being redefined to death or it's just simply fading away. 
dying out. Like the medicinal practice of bloodletting, Christianity is becoming a quaint, out-of-touch, backward-facing relic of times we modern people would really like to forget. What do we do with that? As Christians, how do we understand this trend, this movement in our culture? How do we understand our own identity in Christ when this is what is happening in the world, or at least seeming to? When we look back at history, either recent history or not so recent, it is easy to look with rose-colored glasses, right? To focus on the good parts and gloss over those parts that we don't really want to think about. It would be easy, with that in mind, it would be easy for us to read Acts as the triumph of the church over all comers and look at the next couple of millennia of church history as the sure and certain unfolding of Christian hegemony over the entire world. It's all coming together now. That while there have been some setbacks, some times and places where the pagans and the atheists took over, ultimately, Christ is winning. The church is dominant, and so far it is culminating in the creation of our grand experiment, a democracy founded on Christian principles. Now, if that's the way that we frame the narrative of history, if that's how we understand the story of how we got to where we are now, of God's work in the world, then we will see the current trends in the West and we will be terrified. We will be tempted to doubt God's plan, even to doubt God Himself, because as this framing would have it, this is the culmination of God's work in the world and it is coming unraveled before our very eyes as the pagans and the atheists grab more and more control over our Christian nation. It's a tempting narrative. It's tempting because it portrays us, God's people, as moving from triumph to triumph, coming more and more in control of all things, gaining increasing control over all the kingdoms of the world until they have all become the kingdom of Christ and sin is eradicated. It tells us that we can take control over the existing power structures that we find in the world and use them for Christ. All we have to do is the same thing that everybody else is doing just for a better goal. Just do those things for Christ, a holy goal. But as tempting as that narrative is, it's false. It's a trick. And it's not even a new trick. It's just the same tired old ploy that Satan has used untold numbers of times before. He doesn't have any new tricks. It's the same stuff over and over and over again, just kind of repackaged. In the Gospels, and even in a little bit in Acts, we see people assuming that Jesus would come and would conquer and rule directly, would set up a new empire. And we've talked about this some. An empire ruled by Christ with His followers in the positions of power and authority. Now, as an aside, we rightly look on that assumption by the people in Jesus' day with a jaundiced eye, right? Because if he had done that, if he'd set up an Israelite empire instead of the Roman empire in place of Rome, then the way they wanted him to do, then we would still be dead in our sins. If he had done what they wanted, he w- we would still be dead in our sins. The work of Christ was not to rule an empire, but to die in place of his people, seemingly completely failed. 
to die and rise again and ascend to God's right hand where he is even now interceding for you and for me, for his people, asking the Father to look not at my sin, not at your sin, but at his blood which covers our sin. Shed on the cross. If he had set up that empire the way people wanted him to, politics would be a lot simpler. It would be a lot easier to understand which way is the right way but we would be without hope. We would be dead. And so we rejoice that Christ did what He did in that day, that He did not found an empire. But this trick that Satan used today and used all through the Middle Ages and used in Jesus' day and used all the way back, it was not new even then, it was old. It goes all the way back to the garden goes all the way back to Satan whispering to Adam and Eve that God's plan wasn't good enough. That they should do what they could do to help God's plan along, to accomplish His good purposes. That they should save themselves. That we, by our great wisdom and insight, by our amazing powers of discernment, that we can accomplish our own redemption. The Israelites in Jesus' day wanted an empire that they could help conquer and rule. And in so doing, earn their place in Christ's kingdom. And in a sense, we are tempted today by the same thing. We are tempted by a new cultural empire that we can fight and conquer for Him. That we will rule in His name, thus bringing about Christ's kingdom by our works and our methods. It's the same old lie. Maybe some slightly updated packaging, some slightly less threadbare clothing, but it's the same old lie. And why does this matter? In our passage this morning, we see, if I can put it a little bit anachronistically, we see the first conflict between the church and the state. Verses 1 and verses 5 and 6 read like a who's who in Israelite politics of the first century. It is a fairly inclusive list of all of the most powerful people in the country at the time. But what are they upset about? When you boil all of their complaints down, it comes to two things. Two basic complaints. First, Peter and John are teaching at all. Despite they, you know, they haven't been educated, they're common men, they're fishermen, right? They, but most especially, they haven't been approved. They don't have the stamp of approval by the local hierarchy. They don't have authority to teach in the eyes of these uh, politicians and Sanhedrin whatever. Second, what they're teaching, the specific subjects that Peter touches on, are deeply offensive to this group of people. So their authority to teach and the subject matter of their teaching. Look at verse 2. Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Teaching and proclaiming this specific thing. Now, that doesn't sound all that objectionable apart from it being in Jesus, right? It's fairly anodyne, right? What we miss, though, the Sadducees were the dominant political power in Israel of the day, and they believed that the Messiah had already come in what was called the Maccabean Revolt, the period about 150 years before Jesus. They believed the Messiah had come then, And because they believed that the Messiah had already come, they also believed that there was no resurrection from the dead. That this world is all there is. This life is all there is. 
They held, because of that, they held the strongest version of rule for Christ now. Rule for God now. Because this is all there is. So when the apostles come along teaching about Jesus, the Sadducees being the Messiah, the Sadducees were rather displeased. And they had the political clout to do something about it. And so the apostles are arrested and we have a trial of sorts. I say of sorts because while they are trying them before the same council that condemned Jesus less than two months earlier, the man who was healed is standing there beside Peter and John. And Luke points out that he was over 40 and had been lame since birth, and everybody knew him. He'd probably been brought to the same gate of the temple every day for the last 25 or 30 years. He was a fixture. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody recognized him. And they saw that he was now healed, that the miracle was not a hoax. And since everyone was praising God because of it, the council couldn't very well condemn those by whom this miracle had been done. But it was a threat to their power. A threat both theologically and politically, which in that day was kind of the same thing, but still. So they did what they thought they could get away with to silence these upstarts, treading a narrow path between trying to shut the apostles up and yet not anger the crowd so much that they would become a mob those crowds who had seen the miracle. How do the apostles respond? We have these authorities, the the rulers in Jerusalem, telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. How do they respond? If it were me, man, I'd be calling in every favor I had, pulling every lever I could reach to shortstop this thing so that I didn't have to go to trial. But that's not what they do. They're not campaigning or politicking. As far as we can tell, they don't try at all to stir up the crowd against the political authorities. They simply tell the truth about Jesus. You, Israelites, killed him, and God raised him, and he was the Messiah prophesied by God throughout what we would call the Old Testament. And what Peter told the crowd in the temple that we saw last week, in the courtyard, is pretty well identical to what he tells the council, the Sanhedrin there uh, in our passage this morning. Jesus, who you killed, who God raised, is the Messiah foretold by God in Scripture. Peter's comment about the the stone that the builders rejected uh, becoming the cornerstone, that's almost a direct quote from Psalm 118. Uh, And it was something that even in that day was recognized by pretty much everybody as being about the Messiah. It was a prophecy of the Messiah. And Peter says that God did exactly what he said he would. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, and you leaders in Jerusalem, the builders, you rejected him and you killed him. And the leadership can't refute the basic reality of the man standing in front of them. They can't. He's standing there healed and everybody recognizes him and there's nothing they can do to refute that point. And they don't want to anger the crowd, which really only leaves one option. The authorities command them Don't preach anymore about Jesus. There's a great scene in, uh, I think it's the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie where uh, the the bad guy, Captain Barbosa, is negotiating, right, with with Miss Swan. And he says this, he says, I am disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Means no. And you can kind of see the apostles moving in that same direction, saying something along those lines to the council here. Look at verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered them, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Now, there's really only one right answer to that question. There's not two ways to answer that, right? But again, the council can't really do anything to them without angering the crowd. So they threaten them a bit more, and then they have to let them go. That's the events of the passage. That's the events. That's what goes on here. How does this apply to our lives? How does this help us? It is unlikely that we would be called before a court of law and commanded to desist from preaching the gospel. Not impossible, but it's pretty unlikely. If and when that happens, I I think that we are called to follow the apostles' example here, to obey the Lord rather than the, the magistrate, the civil magistrate. We're responsible first to God for how we talk to him about people. Someone with political authority tells you that you may not proclaim what God has commanded you to proclaim the gospel. There's no question what your decision must be. Peter and John make it pretty clear here. Whether we must obey you or God, you've got to decide, but we're going to do what we've got to do. But as I say, that's pretty unlikely, at least in our day. Far more likely, at least in our lifetimes, far more likely is facing unofficial resistance. Um, facing people who don't want to hear, who don't like the message, don't want to be shown God's righteous standard, the necessity to repent, the reality that the only possible path to salvation lies through humbling myself to receive grace from Christ alone. That that's the only way. There is no other way. Unfortunately, because the resistance that we face is not official, it's not all from the same direction, you know, we like this about Jesus, but not that about Jesus. And so maybe if you massage the message just a little bit, I'd be more willing to listen. Tempting thing, but it's just as much resistance and just as much we must face it down. But because of that, it can be much harder to work out the correct response, especially in the moment. In the heat of the conversation, it can be really difficult to figure out, well, how do I navigate what's going on here? What does it look like to be a Christian in the world but not of the world? What does it look like to be the church in the world but not of the world? This is not an easy question. But I think there are some principles that we can glean from our text to help us. To respond rightly to the world's resistance to the gospel, we need five impossible things. Five impossible things. You've heard the the joke, I try to believe five impossible things before breakfast every day. We need five impossible things. First, we need wisdom, humility, boldness, patience, and trust. Wisdom, humility, boldness, patience, and trust. Let's go through each of those five things. First, wisdom. We need wisdom to know God's Word, to be intimately familiar with His character and how he works now this is obvious right you cannot stand for god you can't stand for the gospel if you don't know the gospel if you don't know god and not just the you know four spiritual laws type of summary you have to drink deeply from god's word from the beginning all the way to the end hitting everything in the middle we have to see the lord's character we have to recognize what engages the lord's heart and then align our hearts to His. To see what angers Him, what saddens Him, what delights Him, and then be angered and saddened and delighted by those same things. 
Now, as I said, this seems obvious, and it is to an extent, but there is an impossible component to it. We are tempted to read our own preferences and prejudices into God's Word. To highlight those things that we already agree with and downplay those things that we're just not really super comfortable about. I'll give you an example. Everyone does this. Everyone does this. We all have blind spots. This is not like, you know, picking on anybody. We all do this. I'll give you an example. We rightly criticize Christians in the Middle Ages for things like the Crusades, attempts to convert people at the point of the sword, uh, using military might and political might to force people to become Christians is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel, right? And we rightly criticize them for them. At the same time, if Christians in those eras of church history were to be able to look at our day, I have to suspect that they might, would rightly criticize our obsession with money, just to, to name one thing. Where they were blind to the lies of the evil one in one area, we are blind in other areas, and it is tempting to allow our blindness to continue and just find the parts of Scripture that are comfortable and easy for us and stand on those and ignore the parts that challenge us. If the God that you see in Scripture never calls you to repent, never challenges you in any way to think different thoughts, you are not worshiping the God of Scripture. You're worshiping a God you've created in your own image. The impossible wisdom that we need to respond rightly to the world's rejection of the gospel includes eyes to see where we are blind and where we are complicit with the world around us. And address that as much as the areas where we disagree with the sinfulness of the world around us. It's easy to critique the world where the world is obviously wicked. That's easy. Anybody can do that. It's much harder to critique ourselves with the world. We need wisdom from God to know Him and to know His truth as revealed in His Word. But second, we need humility. It's not enough just to know the truth, to be changed only in mind. We must also be changed by the truth in our hearts, in our actions, in the entirety of our being. If we are to declare God's truth to a world that desperately needs it, we must remove every obstacle that can possibly be removed. Now, there are some that can't, right? The pure gospel is innately and necessarily offensive. It declares that you can do nothing to please the Lord. You cannot earn your way to salvation at all. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much good you do, it's not enough. That's offensive, and it's irreducibly offensive. The only way to take that offense out is to make it not the gospel anymore, and then what's the point? That said, there are obstacles, there are stumbling blocks, there are offenses that are connected sort of to the gospel that we can Remove. We know that people are offended by the truth of the gospel, and we're therefore tempted to think that if people are offended by me, they're offended by me proclaiming the gospel. If they're offended, I must be doing something right. I'm over the target. But the reality is, maybe I'm just a jerk, and they're offended at me. Just because people are offended doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel. Just because people are offended doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel, doesn't mean you are proclaiming God's truth to a world that desperately needs it. We must pursue holy humility to remove every stumbling block of your own sin 
so that the only offensiveness left is the gospel itself. We need humility. Third, we need boldness. It is scary to confront someone with their sin. Even if we have pursued God's wisdom with an appropriate humility, even still there is risk. Some will believe, certainly, and we rejoice when that happens. We rejoice with the angels and throw a party. Great. But not all will. From God's perspective, for some that refuse, the time just isn't right yet. He's ordained your preaching of the gospel to plant a seed or water a seed that's already there that will sprout to life at some later point in their life. For others, they will resist the Lord their entire life. But from our perspective, those two things can look awfully similar. Both, at least for now, reject the truth. And we're the one presenting the truth, so it feels like a rejection of me. And rejection hurts. Even though I know that it's the Lord being rejected, that it's the gospel being rejected, I'm the one standing here. And it feels like you're rejecting me. And we fear rejection, but along with rejection, there can be other consequences. Not just an awkwardness in the conversation, although that's almost certain to happen. But maybe we'll lose friendships. Maybe we'll lose business contacts. Maybe we'll lose the ability to provide as well for our families. Maybe we'll lose stature or prestige, loss of respect from people whose respect we value. And we cannot know ahead of time what's going to happen. And so we need boldness to overcome our own fear. Boldness that we might proclaim God's truth clearly and simply, not waffling on it at all. A message that we know sometimes is going to be rejected. We need boldness to focus on the gospel and not our pet hobby horses, but on the truth, the pure gold of Christ's gospel. Peter and John declared clearly and straightforwardly a message that they knew would not be well received, especially by the Sanhedrin, by the council. But they declared it boldly anyway. And we need the same boldness. We need the same boldness if we are to declare the same message. Fourth, in addition to wisdom, humility, and boldness, we need patience. Now, you're probably anticipating that I'll say something along the lines of, we need to trust God's timing, knowing that He will not allow His Word to return void, but will make it bear its fruit in time, and we just need to wait until that time. And that's true. We do need that. But it's not what I'm talking about here. We need patience in the older sense of the word. Patience to endure patiently whatever the results of our proclamation end up being. We need boldness because we anticipate what might come and it scares us. We need patience because sometimes we're right. Peter didn't go around striking backroom deals with some of the council so that he would be acquitted. He didn't soften his message before the council so that they wouldn't be offended. He preached the same message in the council that he had before the people. And we'll see that he preaches this same message again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. The center of Peter's defense, if it can be called that, is that he is bound to obey God rather than the council. And then at the end of it, he accepted the council's right to determine what would happen next. You must decide. We will do what we feel God has called us to do, proclaiming what we have seen and heard about Jesus. 
You do what you've got to do. You must decide. He would preach the gospel and accept whatever consequences there might be. Just like Daniel, who persisted in praying to the Lord rather than to the king, despite knowing that it would result in his death. Knowing for sure. And then, when he was caught, he accepted being thrown in the lion's den. He didn't fight it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey the king and accepted being thrown in the furnace. Peter preached the gospel expecting this council to do to him what this council, the same group of men, had done to Jesus less than two months before. That they didn't is Christ's mercy alone, but they absolutely could have. And Christians throughout the ages, right up to the present day, have accepted that the world will hate us. And rather than hating it back, they rejoice that they have been counted worthy to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ. This brings us to the ultimate thing, the final thing, the fifth thing, trust, or put another way, faith. We must trust that the Lord is both sovereign and good. That He is wholly in control of all things all the time, always, and that He is working all things for the good of those who are called by His name. We must have faith that He will do what He said He will do. If you believe that, if you believe that He will do what He said, that He is sovereignly in control of all things and good for His children, if you believe that, then there is nothing the world can threaten you with that can actually harm you. Justin Martyr, uh, as he was about to be killed for refusing to sacrifice to pagan gods in 165 or so, uh, he is reputed to have said, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. You can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. If Christ is actually raised from the dead, and He is, if that is true, then there is absolutely nothing the world can do to harm you. Oh, sure, it might make life unpleasant for a little while. But the worst they can do is send you to be with Jesus. That's it. That's the worst threat they've got. Don't throw me in that there briar patch. Come on now. Their worst threat is to usher us into the presence of the one who loves us better than we can even imagine. Christ is not failing. No matter what happens in the world, Christ is not failing. His reign is every bit as secure today and certain today as it has always been. Christ is on the throne and nothing can shake him from that spot. Whatever happens in this nation, in our day, or in any other day, that truth does not change. Christ is reigning now, and He will never not be reigning. And as we hold on to that truth, we are made boldly humble to proclaim the whole truth of the gospel and patient to endure whatever the Lord allows as the results of our preaching. I can't tell you how many times in history that the church, the gospel, has advanced by the blood of the saints. That God's people have suffered death willingly, have suffered the plundering of their goods, as the author of Hebrews tells us, willingly. That they refused to accept release because they thought it better to be found worthy to suffer with Christ. 
And as Christ does that work in us and makes us faithful even in those things, whether it's unto death or unto dishonor, as He makes us faithful, He makes His gospel go forth. We don't win by winning. We win by dying, just like Jesus. The greatest victory ever won in the world in all of human history or any other history was the day that Jesus died on the cross. He was reigning then. He is reigning now. And as we hold on to His reign, His sovereignty over all things and His goodness for His children, we are made boldly humble to proclaim the whole truth of the gospel and patiently endure whatever the Lord allows as a result because we are known by the One who created all things and who holds them still. The One who who gave himself in our place. Let us therefore rejoice no matter what happens, no matter what comes, because he is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would make us wise and humble and bold and patient and faithful. We struggle to believe. We struggle to see beyond the reality that surrounds us, the threat, the physical threat that the world around us presents. We pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see you sitting on your throne unshaken by the raging of the nations. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit that we might faithfully proclaim your gospel and accept whatever you allow as a result. May your name be praised in our lives, whether in faithfulness all through our lives or faithfulness unto death or anything in between. May we be found faithful. Glorify yourself in us, Lord Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.